Father, we call to you then again from the depths, the depths of sorrow, the depths of our hearts, uh, the depths of the valleys of this life, and pray now that you would speak life-giving words to us. We have no might, I have no might, uh, but your spirit is mighty and your word is powerful. So bless us through them, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh, please do take a seat. We're continuing on in our walk through the book of Romans, and we've got to Romans chapter 3. So if you'd like to turn there in your Bibles, Romans 3. Really, we're just going to focus on two or three verses today. But I'm going to read from verse 19 through to the end of verse 26. Romans 3, verse 19. Let's hear the Spirit's voice. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he'd passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Silence. It is unnerving, isn't it? Silence. And yet that is where Paul has brought us to in Romans. Throughout the last three chapters of this great letter, I thought almost unarguably the greatest letter ever written, Paul has driven us to the place where we've got nothing to say. See verse 19? Every mouth may be stopped, silenced. But Paul has wanted to write to the the Roman Christians and say, I've got incredible good news to you. If you're new to the Christian faith, Paul, this letter is full of good news. Good news from heaven, he says. Good news from God. But he has spent three chapters absolutely shutting us up. He's told us how far short we've fallen of being the people that God called us to be. How little we care about God. We've meant to be these people who live for his glory, says Paul, and we haven't. He's turned and said, look, I know you're going to reach for all sorts of excuses now. I've told you you're going to face God in anger, that God is angry at sin and one day he will punish. That there is a day of wrath, as Paul calls it, coming. And I know you're going to go for all sorts of excuses. You're going to tell me you're really religious. God doesn't care. 
You're going to tell me you've got all sorts of religious signs and symbols. God doesn't care. You're going to tell me you didn't really know. You're lying. You knew. You knew how to live. There is no escape and there is silence before God's judgment seat. In many ways, it's a heavy start to a letter. And I want us to feel the weight, because unless you feel the weight, then the great turnaround that comes in verse 21, but now, will lose its power, its significance. And yet those words, those words that God speaks into the silence, once we have zipped our mouths up, once we have run out of excuses, run out of words, once we accept that by rights, in justice, God ought to condemn us to an eternal hell. And that won't be him being unfair, malicious. That's not him losing his temper. That is him acting in pure justice. Once we accept that in and of ourselves there is nothing we could say to complain. Then Paul says, I've got wonderful news. But now, but now. If this is one of the most important letters ever written, then this paragraph is recognised as the, almost the centre of the letter, one of the most important paragraphs, if not the most important paragraph in the letter. And so we're going to make, spend <coughs> excuse me, two weeks on it. And so now I really want to focus on what Paul means in verse 23 and 24. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Yeah, that's a summary of the first three chapters we've seen already. We've fallen short of God's glory. Whether that means we don't glorify him as we should have done, whether it means that we've fallen from being the glorious creatures that God made us to be, whether it means we haven't reflected his glory back to him as we ought to have done, I don't know. It's a slightly unusual phrase, but the result is the same. We are all guilty. We're all sinful. All. And here's the good news. Verse 24. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. Justified. That one word makes all the difference to your life and to your eternity. Paul once in Romans talks about Christians being forgiven. Just once in this whole letter does he talk about them being forgiven. And even then he's quoting someone else. But time and time again, he talks about the fact that Christians are justified. And so it's vital we understand what this word means what God has done. And that's what we're thinking about today. What is justification? Why does it matter? Three questions. First of all, very simply, what is justification? What does it mean that God has justified us? It's all to do with righteousness. To be righteous is, is to be in a right standing with God. To have fulfilled the law as we ought to have done. To have kept all his rules. Children, it's a bit like saying we've kept the Ten Commandments perfectly. And in verse 21, we're told righteousness is possible. A righteousness of God has been manifest. It's been shown. It's come. In verse 22, the righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ. It's a righteousness that comes from God. To be righteous, to be right with God, to have lived as it were, or rather for God to say we've lived as if we're okay with him. To be righteous is to be in the right with God. But that doesn't yet answer the question of what does it mean to be justified? It's something to do with righteousness, but what does it mean for God to justify us? 
Now, it's, it's a little bit more hidden in English than in Greek. We don't often try and quote Greek from the front because, first of all, I'm not very good at it, and second of all, it looks like you're showing off. But the, the word in verse 24, justified, and every time you see the word justified or justification all the way through the book of Romans, in fact, all the way through the New Testament, it's the same word, it's the verb, and what verbs are children doing words, it's the verb that goes with the noun, the thing, righteousness. Now, we don't have an English word, um, to righteous someone. You can't say that in English. But you can in Greek, and that's, that's, what it, that's what it says in the Greek, as it were. So it's the same word. So righteousness and justify look different in English, same underneath in Greek. Here's what justification means. God justifies us when he declares us right with him. When he declares us right in his sight. To be justified is to be declared in the right with him. Now, straight away, need to make a clarification. It is not to be made right with God. And that distinction is so important. So important. It's not to be made right with God, but declared. Now, let me give you two other times in the Bible that word justified is used. And, it, and I hope they'll show that it, it can't be about actually changing us just about a declaration a status a statement Uh, so in proverbs proverbs 17 and verse 15 we read this he who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the lord think about the first verse: he who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous talking about a judge who's corrupt a wicked person comes in but he's friends with the judge so the judge says yeah you're fine you can go not guilty and then a good person comes in but perhaps he's offended the judge and the judge condemns him because he doesn't like him an unjust judge but listen to the word again he who justifies the wicked if a corrupt judge justifies the wicked he's not actually making the criminal who is his friend a good person is he He's not somehow getting inside him and changing his heart and making him into a good person. No, he's acquitting him. Again, it's a legal term. It's about a status, not about a change, an internal change. Or in Luke's gospel, uh, in Luke 7 uh, and verse 29, we read read this. Uh, People see all these amazing miracles that, that Jesus do. And we read this. When all the people heard this, And the tax collectors too, they declared God just. Or literally, they justified God. Now, what's going on in that story? Other people making God into a better God, a better person. Are they improving his moral character? Are they changing him for the better? No, of course not. When the people justify God, they're declaring, you are good, you are just. It's about a justification is about a statement, a status, not about an internal change. That might sound really boring and nitpicky, but it is absolutely vital. Uh, children, imagine I've got two pieces of paper. Here you go, I'm going to get two pieces of paper on my wallet. Okay, two pieces of paper, roughly the same size. Now, they're both made out of paper, more or less. Here's one of them, can you see it? And there's another. Okay, two pieces of paper, about the same size. Which one is more valuable? If I was to give you one of them, which one would you want? I suspect you'd want this one, wouldn't you? Okay, the £10 note. You wouldn't want this one, the bit of rubbishy paper from Morrison's. Why is that? 
They're both, in one sense, it, it, almost exactly the same. They're both just bits of paper a few inches long. <coughs> but whoever's in charge of the, well, the Queen, or whoever's in charge of the Bank of England, I uh, can't read his name, the Chief Cashier, someone, Edward, someone has declared that this piece of paper, although in many ways exactly the same as the other, this one has the status it is going to be worth £10. Now, it hasn't become gold, has it? It remains paper. Nothing has happened to the paper, but it now has the status. It, it has written on it £10. It has the value £10, even though it's not changed in any way. Its status, if you like, has changed, although nothing has happened to it. Well, so too in justification. When God justifies us, he doesn't get inside you and change you. When God justifies you, you appear before his law court, him, the judge, you and the dog, and he says, not just not guilty, go on then, but you are right with me. How's that possible? Here's our second question. How's that possible? If, if to be justified is to be declared in, the, declared in the right with God, how is that possible, given that we're a sinner, given all that Paul has said? Verse 21. Now the righteousness of God has been manifested, it's been shown apart from the law. First thing Paul says is, get this clear, it's nothing to do with how you live. It is apart from, it's separate from the law. The law there, uh, hopefully in the, in the ESV at least, it's got a, a little L. Now Greek doesn't work like that, it's not capitals and little L's like that. But um, little L, and, and they mean there the kind of, what Paul means uh, in verse 20, the works of the law. You are not justified, you're not declared in the right with God by doing stuff. Having no other gods before me, not making graven images, not taking the Lord's name in vain, keeping the Sabbath, honouring your father and mother, don't murder, don't... That's not how you are justified, Paul says. It's nothing to do with works of the law. That's impossible. It's an impossible way. If you're new to Christianity, do you realise that? The Christian gospel, the Christian message is not try harder and be better. You need a righteousness that doesn't come from you at all, but comes from God. Now, straight away, Paul puts in a little clarification. You see in verse 21, it's apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Again, the SV, capitals law this time. Uh, because Paul is using the same word law in two different ways. First time, it means trying hard to keep all the laws, be good. The second time, law and prophets is just a way of talking about the Old Testament. And Paul's saying, look, by the way, and I'm going to come back to this in later chapters, by the way, the whole Old Testament taught this too. Don't think this is something new, this way of being saved. It's not as if the Old Testament was all about try harder, be good, keep the commandments. And then in the New Testament, hey, grace, justification. No, said Paul, the Old Testament's all about this too. Hold that thought, we'll come back to it later. So if it's not from the law, it's not from our obedience, it's not from me, Where's it from? Well, it's from God. Twice we're told it's the righteousness of God, verse 21. Verse 22, the righteousness of God. <clears throat> he, and that is good news, isn't it? He wants to be able to declare sinners right with him. It's so important we don't detach this kind of legal imagery from the character of God. He wants to justify Sinners. This justification, in fact, is only for sinners. This only should interest you if you are a sinner. It is exclusively for sinners. God is going to provide a righteousness 
Where? How? Well, it's through faith in Jesus Christ. If you want to be really literal, it's faith into Jesus Christ. How is it possible for sinners, for the guilty, because we know what we're actually like, how is it possible for God to say, huh, yes, you're right with me, not guilty. You've done everything you should have done. What's this called? Through faith in Jesus Christ, the righteousness is found in him, not in you, in Jesus. That is why Jesus had to come into the world. The son of God who always existed had to become one of us, had to become a human being. Children, I wonder if you ever thought about this. Could Jesus, the son of God, not have just come to earth as God and died for us? Why did he bother becoming a person, a real human being with a real human mind and a real human soul, real human body, real human emotions? Couldn't he have just have come down and died as God? Well, you say because you're really well taught children. Well, of course not, because God can't die. Well, that's true. But there's another reason. And that is that he had to do everything we failed to do. In order to be saved, in order to be allowed into heaven, ultimately, what we need as human beings is not an angelic obedience. There's loads of sinless beings in the world, aren't there? Gabriel is sinless. The archangel Michael is sinless. The seraphim are sinless. That's no use to us. We need human righteousness, a human being to represent us, to do everything we were called to do. Adam messed it up. He was told to love God, heart, soul, mind and strength. And his neighbour is himself to summarise God's call on our lives. And Adam messed it up. And from that moment onwards, we needed another person to live the life we should have lived. To keep the law. Again, just, just think of the Ten Commandments. Children, have you done those exercises when you were learning to write where... That the letters are all kind of dotted and you have to kind of go over them and make them into actually solid lines. And it's as if the law was given as dotted lines, have no other gods before me. But we could never actually do it. We could never actually complete it. We all know that, don't we? You could pick any of the commandments. I'll show not a bit of adultery. Which Jesus says goes down to the heart level. How far into the commandment have you fulfilled it? Not the first T. But Jesus came and he perfectly lived out every letter of every commandment. Not just outwardly, so that people didn't spot sin. But at the same time, there's all sorts of corruption on the inside. That's often our case, isn't it? People don't see most of our sin, but we know in our hearts we're far, far worse than anyone else. Even our spouses realise. Jesus was pure all the way through. No hypocrisy, no mask, no inconsistency. And God offers to treat us in light of Jesus' life record instead of ours, to switch sheets. We haven't even begun to fulfill the law, but Jesus fulfilled it perfectly. And in justification, God says, we'll switch. I will declare you righteous on the basis of Jesus' life. If you want to be allowed into heaven, if you want to get through my heavenly courtroom, the heavenly judgment day, then here is a perfect righteousness for you in the person of Jesus. It could not be better, therefore, could it? My first boss in ministry, um, and almost my only boss actually in ministry, uh, told me once uh, that he was in a class, he was um, taking some sort of advanced classes and he was over in America uh, with a guy called R.C. Sproul, who some of you might have come across, a great writer, he's died relatively recently, great sort of writer, theologian, minister. And he was in this class and uh, he said to this class, and they were all ministers, you know, they'd all been sort of good evangelical ministers for a good while of time. He said to the class, 
You do realise, don't you, that we're saved by works. And, and the whole class are kind of like, right, that really doesn't sound right. And we've been preaching for about like, you know, 20 years each by now. And we're totally sure we're not saved by works. But you are R.C. Sprawl and you're the professor. And this is a bit, you know, uh, and he's obviously trying to wind them up. But he's making, he's making a point. He goes on, you are saved by works. Jesus' works, not yours. Someone had to do the work. In justice, God had left you in your sin. But in love, he sent his son to do the work for you. You are declared righteous, justified, righteousified, if you like, to make up a word, on the basis of Jesus' perfect life. Martin Luther called this alien righteousness. John, that's a weird word, isn't it? Alien righteousness. He didn't mean aliens like the little guys with green antennae and live in spaceships and whatever aliens do. Alien meant outside of you. It's not in you in any way. It is outside of you. And that takes us back to that, that, that awkward silence with which we began. 319. The law says it's, um, whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped, silenced. The law, which says do this, silences you. There's nothing you can say. I've done this, I've done that, I tried, I, nope, 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 says Paul. But the gospel says it's done. It's done for you. And so what is your job, as it were, on Judgment Day? Or what is your, your hope now? When that question comes, why should I? Why should I acquit you? Why should I justify you? Why should I let you enjoy heaven? The answer is not to say anything, but to point. Nothing that I've done. But look, just point, Jesus. He is the only reason. You can acquit me. Only reason you can love me. Only reason you can let me into heaven. Only reason I'm not cast into hell. Point him. He's done it all. And how do we receive it? There's our third question. How do we receive this justification? This right status with God? Verse 24. We're justified by his grace as a gift. By his grace as a gift. That's two ways of saying the same thing. God's grace is... It's just his giving, freely giving, not charging anything. This justification, this saves is received, not earned. Every other religion in the world tells you to do something to get right. Go on pilgrimage, say your prayers, bow down to this God, give money, give alms, care for the poor, meditate. Even the kind of secular religions that drive us, we've spoken over the last few weeks about the fact that we're all deeply religious. Again, if you're new to, to church... Then don't think of yourselves as someone who's not religious, sat in the middle of a bunch of religious people. You will be deeply religious too. You may not believe in a God, but something is driving you to prove yourself. Life will be okay if I can get thinner. Life will be okay if I can get a partner. Life will be okay if I succeed academically. Life will be okay if I earn money. We're desperately trying to do. It is, by the way, I think, all driven by this deep down knowledge that we're facing a judgment one day, that we're not enough, that we failed. And so we're desperately trying to paper over it by being healthy, being clever, being successful, being rich, being popular, being funny. Doesn't work, does it? We're all riddled with anxiety. We know we're not enough. Every other religion says do, do, do. Christianity says done. Children, that's the difference. Two letters, N-E, do and done. It is done, it is a gift. God wants to give it to you. You do nothing, not by works. And that's why it's received through faith. Do you see that in verse 22? 
The righteousness of God through faith. Notice it's not by faith. Okay, again, this, is, this, this might sound a bit technical, but it's actually it's really significant. We're saved by grace through faith. What actually has the power to justify it? God's grace, his kindness, his gift of Jesus' righteousness. You're saved by Jesus, in other words. To say you're saved by grace is just to say you're saved by God. But it comes to us through faith. Faith is just a vessel for receiving it. It's not a thing. It's not as if God says, well, well done, you've got faith. And so although you didn't keep the law, as you should have done, at least you're one of those people who has faith. So I'll let you in, unlike those naughty people who don't have faith. As if faith was the qualification. I kind of, you couldn't do the keeping the law thing, so let's change it and say anyone who has faith, they can come in. That's not how it works at all. Faith is just the instrument. It's, just, it's, it's not about faith. It's about who you're trusting. You believe into Jesus or you believe in yourself. That's it. Everyone has faith. Imagine you're ill and it's, it's looking like death for you. You're on your sick bed and the doctor comes in and says, I found the cure. Here's a medicine. Open wide. And you open your mouth and he pours the medicine in and you, you, you're healed. And you walk out the door and someone says, uh, wow, what happened? What saved you? You say, well, my mouth. My mouth. Open my mouth. Save me. Ridiculous. This mouth didn't save you. The medicine saved you. The mouth was just a thing that the medicine was poured down. Faith too. It's not, it's not a thing you sum up in yourself. Like, oh, look, God, here's my faith. Now I'm okay. As if you have got something to say on the last day. Uh, yes, God, I'm, I'm a sinner, but I've got faith. Look at my faith, God. And he says, well done. No. No, you're saying by Jesus. That is tremendously important because it stops you endlessly looking at your faith to work out if it's strong enough. Probably isn't. But the strength in faith is not in the faith. It's in the person you're trusting. I hate flying. I've told you this several times if you've been around church. I absolutely hate flying. Um, and last time I flew, I flew with the minister of our church in, um, in York, Matthew Roberts, who loves flying, loves aeroplanes, loves engines, loves explaining how they work. Um, and also, when sat on a plane next to me, loves grabbing my arm every time there's a bit of turbulence and going, ooh, you know, he's going, goodness me, John, did you see the wind? All that kind of stuff. Really, really, really helpful guy. Um, now, we're sat next to each other on the plane. Every time there's some turbulence, every time the thing wobbles, and my face goes pale, and Matthew's kind of laughing his head off. Who is safer? Matthew or me? We're both exactly the same, aren't we? We're both as safe as each other. My faith in the plane is tiny. His faith in the plane is massive. We're both equally safe. Because the safety comes not from faith, but from the plane. See how important it is that this verdict, this justification is outside of you in every way. It's in Jesus. He is your hope, not your faith. And certainly not your works. So two things we finished. First of all, this status is full and final. You can't be more or less justified. You can't be more or less declared righteous. Because it's Jesus' record, not yours. And it's finished. He's lived. He's died. He's risen again. It is finished. Therefore, you can't improve your justification. Don't try to. Okay, don't try to add to it. Have you had a Thanksgiving dinner? Okay, it's a perfectly nice roast dinner. Roast turkey, roast plays, all the rest of it. Then the Americans come along and pour marshmallows over everything. Okay, that is adding whilst ruining. Okay, it is an addition that doesn't help. Okay, don't try and add to your justification. Justification is 
finished. You don't top it up. And therefore, because it's a status, in a sense, it doesn't matter what you feel about it. Now, the more you can believe it, the more you trust it, the more joy, the more certainty will come. That is all true. But even when you're wavering, your justified status stays the same. At the moment, I'm uh, at home we're reading a, a book called The Eagle of the Ninth with my children, and um, it's about some Roman and his, his British slave who he sets free. And slave, the, the Roman's called Marcus and the slave's called Esker. In the story we read just last night, Marcus sets free Esker, the slave, and he gives him this little scroll, it's called a manumission, and it's a piece of paper that says you are free. Now, it's quite possible a slave who's lived all his life as a slave wakes up the next morning and thinks, right, got to go and get my master's breakfast, better get his shoes ready, lay out his clothes, trudges off to the slave's quarters, and he may not feel free. But he's got that little document that says, you are free. His status hasn't changed. He is a free man now. Whatever he feels about it doesn't really make any difference. The status is secure. So too with justification. It's so freeing. It means you don't need to prove yourself to God anymore. Because Jesus has proved himself to God in your place. So neither in your Christian life, nor in fact in the rest of your life, have you got anything to prove to anybody? Again, so much of our desperate desire to prove ourselves to people comes from the fact that we actually so often doubt that we're right with God. If we were fully confident in this status, we wouldn't need to show that we're the funniest, the cleverest, the most beautiful. We wouldn't be so consumed by the data to succeed at absolutely everything. We wouldn't be so proud about what everyone else thinks of us because we're totally secure in the fact that the Lord God Almighty looks at us and we're safe. It's full, it's final, and it's foundational for the rest of the Christian life, just as we closed. God has made a decision about you. If you've believed into Jesus Christ, he has made a decision about you, and he does know what you're like. When you speak about justification, people will, and some of you will be doing this in your heads already, say, yeah, 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 but I mean, you didn't see what I did last night. No, I didn't, God did. God knows what you're like. He knew what you were like before he justified you. He knows what you'll be like every day between now and heaven. But if you've believed into Christ, then your sin doesn't undo the justification, the status. It's just nothing to do with it. You say, yeah, but I... And God says, I know, I know. In fact, I know you better than you, you do. He knows you better than you know yourself. He knows your sin far better than you know it. In the Pilgrim's Progress, there's a... Great story, it's a great allegory, the Pilgrim's Progress, um, Christian and various friends on their way to heaven on this pilgrimage. And at one point, a character called Faithful is talking to Christian. And he says, I was walking along the way on my pilgrimage home to heaven. And this guy jumped at me and battered me, beaten me and beaten me and beaten me. And I, I just couldn't get up. And I cried out to him, have mercy. And, and this, this man said, I don't know how to show mercy. And kept beating until another man came along and drove him off. And, and, and Christian, the central character, says, ah... That first character was Moses, representing the law. There is no mercy in the law. You've got to do it perfectly. If that's the way you want to go to heaven, it is possible, but you've got to do it perfectly. It's actually not possible for you now. Moses will beat and beat and beat. But Jesus, Jesus will drive him off and say you are welcome. 
So many of our problems in the Christian life come from the fact that we still think in some way we have to do something to earn God's favour. You might be able to give a perfect definition of justification, and yet you fear you'll be rejected. I've trusted Jesus, but still. And it's because we haven't killed off this, this kind of legal spirit that remains within us. We think ultimately it's our behaviour, our holiness, our obedience, our love, our warmth, our prayers, our fervency, our zeal, our evangelism, our quiet times, our prayer life. That is what ultimately God looks at as to whether it upset me. No. Works of the law are gone. Martin Luther says it ought to be the first concern of every Christian to lay aside all confidence in works and grow in the knowledge, not of works, but of Christ Jesus. The call is not to look endlessly at what you've done, but out to that alien righteousness that has come from above, from Jesus Christ, who's come to earth, lived in your place, and in him you are fully secure. In a way that can never be undone. Silence should be terrifying. But just point. Point to him. And you're welcome secure. Let's pray. Father in heaven. We have nothing to say to you. To justify ourselves. No excuses for our sin. No reason why we don't love you as we should. Our guilt is as high as the heavens, but your grace is even greater. And so we want to just point to Jesus and say, please look at him instead of us and help us to live each day of our lives going onwards, confident in that status, to wake each morning and look to Christ, not ourselves. Might you fill us with confidence, with joy, with assurance. We praise you that you are a God of such love. Help us to know it in increasing measure, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.